Hey, this is Rob Harder with Making Your World Better, a nonprofit leadership show where real stories from real people who are coming up with real solutions to solve society's biggest challenges. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? How do people fundraise in an economy that is constantly in flux? How do you relate to board members in a way that inspires them to make a difference? What are the best practices that separate effective nonprofits from others? It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together we hear how they're making their world better. Welcome to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, Making Your World Better. I think all of us who are leaders in the nonprofit sector have had at least one really difficult or perhaps even disappointing experience. I mean, some of you may have had such a painful experience that you were tempted to drop out of leadership altogether. So what do you do when you're faced with setbacks and disappointments? How do you break out of the story that someone has attempted to write about you in order to write your own story? Well, my guest today is Flip Flippin. Flip spent the first 16 years of his professional life building a nonprofit organization that worked with gangs and throwaway kids. In the process, he also built a 500-acre residential facility for young people. He's also the founder and chairman of Flippin Group, one of the fastest-growing educator training, corporate talent, and team development companies in North America. Flip is a New York Times and USA Today best-selling author who's written a new book out called Your Third Story. Enjoy today's show. Flip, it's so great to have you on the show today. Now, with the show being a podcast focused on nonprofit leadership, let's start talking about the first 16 years of your professional life in which you built a nonprofit organization that worked with gangs and throwaway kids. What caused you to start this nonprofit in the first place, and why did you focus on gangs and throwaway kids? Oh, well, Rob, that's a great question, Rob. I, you know, I'll tell you the answer is pretty simple, though. I, I was finishing up my graduate work at A&M, and I was headed to Africa on a project with Dr. Leakey, and, but I was doing a lot of my doctoral research with uh, high-at-risk kids. And, and candidly, I was with some young boys one day and, and just seeing all the potential in them and what they were doing with their lives. It, it, just, it just wasn't working, and, and candidly, it just broke my heart. And, and and that's really become something that I've stuck with. I want the things that break kids' hearts to break my heart. And that's what did it, and it led to a pretty radical change in where I was going professionally. And and so I opened a nonprofit, uh, outreach, uh, free outpatient clinical uh, services program, and we started serving kids and, and of course when you're working with street kids and gang kids there's no there's no money in it you know we were fortunate enough to have uh you know a lot of friends that would put in five ten dollars a month and that grew and we built the organization out of that to a pretty large clinic and outreach program but it all came about because of a broken heart honestly that's very interesting. And, and as you look back over that experience, what were the biggest challenges you faced as you sought to build this nonprofit and grow it over 16 years? One of the things that we did, Rob, it was really, you know, in one sense it was really hard. In another sense it was not hard because it was a choice. But one of the things that we did, we, we chose to be poor. And we chose to be heavily, heavily invested in building that organization. And I 
I don't think that you can really build anything worthwhile if you don't if you don't do it at personal sacrifice, and which which goes against a lot of business models because they like to use everybody else's money to you know, for their learning curve and their programs. But that's not how I feel about it. And so uh, you know, a hard part was just being able to adjust. Mm-hmm. But we've been in graduate school, so it wasn't you know it wasn't like we had anything to begin with. And but um, but that was you know that was a tough deal and a good learning curve for us and but I'm not any happier now than I was then so I was you know it was a good time to, uh, so one of the things was just uh, financial constraints that every nonprofit feels they, and if they don't feel it personally I think they're missing an amazing opportunity and I know that sounds paradoxical but it's true and then the the second thing too is trying to get the right team together. Because a lot of times you'll have just super good volunteers, but they may not have some of the skill set that's needed. And so you need a good balance between that volunteer team and that professional team. And, and then, of course, the third thing is having a good board that can give good oversight and, and help with strategic thinking and that sort of thing. And when you're small, uh, that's going to be friends and family. You know, as ours grew to be one of the largest in the nation, it uh, it changed. Our board obviously got a lot stronger uh, in terms of their professionalism, but at the same time, there were still issues. The tension between CEOs and boards sometimes can get out of hand, and and that's one of the difficult things. The the founder CEO has a vision and a strategy, and he's the one who's got all the skin in the game, and the board. You know, may or may not comprehend that or share that. So, for a lot of nonprofits, that's a that's a relationship that needs management. The best cure for that's a lot of communication. Well, as we mentioned before, you've got a brand new book out called Your Third Story, and in your book, you share a very personal and very painful story about your board firing you from your role. And as you look back on it now, at that agonizing moment in your life, what was your primary takeaway from that experience? Hey, Rob, thanks for bringing up the most painful time. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, everybody has pain. We all have things that take place in our lives, and that's part of what the book is about. But, but for me, that was a very, very difficult time because, you know, we'd spent 16 years. We'd grown the nonprofit, the free outpatient clinic. Uh, I had also built a 500-acre residential treatment ranch uh, for boys that were in really difficult situations. and uh, But in the process of all of that, uh, there were some things that took place that uh, led to some things being said to a couple of our board members that um, weren't true and, and later, you know, came out that they absolutely were not true. And I think the hardest thing for me at that in that moment, so there's kind of a, some different parts, but in that moment, uh, being, uh, you know, really unjustly treated is what I felt had happened and uh, no explanation, no discussion about what had happened. It was very hard. And, and I was fortunate because I was able to walk away from that and start my own practice and my own companies that have now over the years been very very successful and but but in that moment it was this it was this sense of rejection and and brokenness that was a you know that was a really really tough deal and but people face that and here's one of the things that you've got to come to grips with you know you're either going to be a victim 
or you're going to be somebody that can deal with adversity and find a way through it and deal with it, make something great out of it. And that's what I chose to do. I couldn't. There's no way that I could live with bitterness or unforgiveness or resentment. I I just don't want to live that way. It's too much baggage. I see people walking through life trying to carry that kind of load, and I'm telling you, that's a heavy load. And I've never seen anybody go through life successfully filled with resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness. It, that just doesn't work. I don't want to live like that. So that was a, that was a tough deal, but there were great lessons in there too. And I, I hopefully, hopefully I, I learned to get many of them. Flip, thanks so much for being so honest and vulnerable. I think it's part of the uh, appeal to your book of just being so open about some of the most painful experiences of your life. Now, what I found is through your book and through the website I've looked at, it appears that your life's motto is this, building relationships and processes that bring out the best in people. How do you go about building relationships and processes that do just that, like bring out the best in people? (laughs) What a great question. Uh, And that motto means a great deal to me and our company. um, But here's one of the first ingredients in that. Uh, You've really got to love people. You have to love people. And so many people today, they, they're they disconnected, they're alienated, they're not connected. And But you stop and think, you know, that we, we all have so much in common when you really think about it. You know, we have pains and victories. We have dreams and hopes and we have fears and anxieties. And, and I look at that and everything in me wants to, touch those things in people and help them discover them and turn them on and learn to live at a level that they've never, ever dreamed of. And, and Rob, it's one of the things I saw when I was on the streets, especially working with the uh, gang kids, is that their lives were, one, they were short just because of the violent situations that they lived in and created. And But the other thing is is that they, they had no hope for anything any different. They could not see beyond what was right in front of them. And yet here I was in an entirely different world. And the world that I was in was filled with opportunities and social networks and connections and friendships and education and opportunity and and the question was, is what stands between these two worlds? And and honestly, I think a, a lot of that was just the, the social equity, if you will, the social capital, the connections that people have. And But we don't reach across those barriers. And I, I had the ability to do that because I cared. I, I'm going to tell you straight up, it had nothing to do with the fact that I was well-trained or smart, which obviously is not the case. It is not those things. I think it is the heart of a person that really makes the difference. And and that's that's what did it for me, and I think that's what brings out the best in people. When you're around good people, it does make you want to be better. It certainly does for me. And so I think that's a – it may not be the answer a lot of people want to hear, but that really is the truth. Hey everybody, Rob here. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Show. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other interviews with fascinating guests that I've previously interviewed. 
Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org, and there you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I think you'll really enjoy those interviews. We want to give you more content, and we'd like to get that information to you. And all you have to do is give us your email. When you go to that website, you can put your email address in that first box you'll see on the front page, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. In addition to some great content, you'll see the latest uh, podcast shows that will be actually sent right to your inbox. And that way you'll never miss any of the great content on this show. The other thing I'll mention to you is if you have questions or comments or you'd like to be on the show, do not hesitate to email me. I'd love to hear from you. Just do that through our website, my email, rob at ccofpc.org. Well, thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Okay, Flip, let's talk about your book a bit. Uh, It's entitled again, Your Third Story. And in a very quick summary, you talk about how your first story is the one given to you. Your second story is the one you tell yourself. But your third story is the story you write. So how exactly does someone write your own story? Uh, talk about how this starts and what does it look like every day? Yeah, so so let me back up and just go with what you just said. So that first story, just as you said, you're, you didn't write it. You're born into it. It's part of your life, but, but you didn't write it. That second story, that's when we start telling ourselves things. And, and the things we tell ourselves, Rob, here's the key to the third story, is that in that second story, we tell ourselves things that are not true. We say, well, you know, I didn't do this because of this, or I didn't play this sport because of this, or I I didn't go to this college because of this, or I didn't date this girl because of this. We we always have a story. We tell ourselves stories about everything in our lives. And in in adolescence, the sad thing is, is that we're also filled with fears and anxieties and embarrassments and tons of things that warp those stories. And we find out that we really do lie to ourselves a lot. You know, if I if I tell you a lie, that's one thing. But if I'm lying to myself, I've got to live with that lie every day, and I live inside that lie. And so when you say, how do you go about writing that third story? The first thing, the first thing is having the courage to look at your life in a, in a pretty simple way and say, you know, where am I lying to myself? I mean, I see people that say, oh, I've got a great marriage. Well, no, you really don't. You're not, a, you're not a good spouse. You're not good to people. Oh, I'm a great parent. No, you're really not. You're a lazy parent. You, you don't spend time with your kids. You, oh, you know, I'm a phenomenal employee, and I don't get a raise, and I don't get a promotion because of. And it's like, mm-hmm, really? There may be more to that than what you're thinking. And And for me, I started looking in my life. You know, I got... I got an opportunity to go to Harvard, and and I mean, I was really, really blessed with that opportunity. It's a, just a, a great privilege in my life, except for one thing. I didn't go, and I told myself a story, and here's here's why I didn't go. I mean, golly, I've never been out of Texas, and, you know, I don't have the clothes for up north. My family doesn't want me to go. You know, the list is endless. And you tell yourself that story until you believe it. Then you take it for a walk with some friends. And, of course, your friends are going to agree with you. Oh, I agree, I agree. And it becomes your story. And so that third story, I I really, when I was like 27, 28 years old, I looked at my life and I thought, that is so not true. And and what brought it about is I, I actually told a guy that I had met why I didn't go to Harvard. And he looked at me. 
And I'm telling you, Robbie looked at me and said, Flip, you're an idiot. That is that is the biggest bunch of bull I've ever heard in my life. And I, I started to correct him, of course, with my story, except that it really did start to sound stupid. And then I began to realize I do that a lot. And and so I really set about not doing that anymore. And now my life is radically different than it was at that time. I don't, I'm sure I still do, but I certainly don't want to lie to myself or tell myself stories. So it starts with courage. It starts with looking at your life, finding some things where you flat out know you just lied to yourself. And then it's like, okay, how do I redo that? How do I rewrite that? Now, I'm not going back and going to Harvard, but what I did do is I wrote down in my journal, I'm not going to let my fears dictate my future decisions. And to the very best of my ability, I I don't let those fears dictate those future decisions. Really well well said there. You know, one of the key points you make in the chapter about your third story is about self-talk. Now, you kind of referenced that in your previous answer. Uh, you say that your self-talk needs some rewiring. I really like how you worded that. That's great. I think most of my listeners would agree with that. But how does it work? How do people really begin to rewire their self-talk? Well, you know, if we, if we, if we just did it from purely a neurological point of view, you know, you begin to habituate a different thought. That's one of the things. But here's, here's something that is, is not very well known today, Robin. As, and, you know, you and I both are shrinks, and so we get a little bit better handle on this. But some of the newest research that's out, especially Dr. Brian Anderson's work, um, if, I start, if I start saying, you know, I'm not going to eat the donut, not going to eat that donut, I'm not going to eat that donut. I absolutely am not going to eat that donut. Every time you say that, the salient thought becomes the donut. And so your focus quickly becomes that donut in every form. Now, you may be able to white knuckle it through that and not eat that particular donut, but I can tell you that over 90% probability you're going to eat that donut. And so if we say, you know what, I'm not going to think this, I'm not going to, you can't do that. The research is showing that every time you do that, the exact same spot in your brain lights up on an fMRI as though you were saying, yes, I am. It's the exact same spot because you're activating the same area because you're using the salient word of the thing that you're not wanting to do. So let's stop and think. Instead of saying, I don't want to eat the donut, what we would stop and say is, you know, I really I really just want to live a good, healthy life. I want to grow old. I want to have great time with my kids. I want to be able to run in the yard. What do you want? And that's where you have to go with that. You have to stop and say, what do I want? If you want a great relationship, look at what's not working and then say, you know, what do you want? I mean, what do you want? You cannot go around saying, you know, I'm going to stop yelling. I'm going to stop yelling. That that does not work. And the research is bearing that out neurologically right now. So when you say writing that story and rewiring uh, what's going on in your head, what, the very first thing you do is say, what do I really want? I, I want to be a great husband. Now, Robert, there's another part to this that's key and most people are missing it. And that is, you can't just have a reason to change. People don't change because they have a reason. They change because they have an emotionally compelling reason. That's why people change. 
we're not we're not as rational as we like to believe. We're very emotional. And if you really want to activate the right centers in your brain, that's what you're going to say. You know, for me, if I speak harsh to my wife, I I can go around saying, "Am I going to speak harsh? Am I going to speak harsh? Am I going to speak harsh?" That doesn't work. If I go around saying, "You know, it, it broke my heart to see that I hurt her," I have an emotionally compelling reason to begin to change to what I want, which is to really adore my wife, which, by the way, I do. <laughs> and so it's a it's this process, and we talk about that in the book and lay out some really good practical ways to do that. And, and the cool thing is, is that it works. Well, this has been fascinating. I think for my listeners, I encourage you to check out Flip's book. And so, Flip, if they want to find out more about you, your organization, and your new book, where would they go? Well, you can just type in Flip, Flip, and you can type in, uh, certainly on Amazon, you can type in yourthirdstorybook.com, yourthirdstorybook.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Flip Flippin and Instagram and our uh, Facebook page, too. But uh, the book's doing really well now. We were just blown away yesterday. It, it hit number three on the chart on the first day out, and that was pretty amazing. Our first book, The Flip Side, you know, Rob did really well, and it became a New York Times bestseller the first week it was out which was pretty surprising when you realize there are about 350,000 books published by publishers a year. And we were surprised at that, but very, very humbled and thankful. And so we've got a lot of friends. And as you said earlier, it's not a fan base, it's a friend base. And, and so we very appreciate people trusting us to be able to speak into their lives. It's an honor. Well, my guest again today has been Flip Flippin. He's a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author who has a new book out called Your Third Story. I encourage you to check it out. Flip, again, thank you so much for taking time to be on the show today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure, Rob. Thanks for having us. I wanted to let you know that we are on iTunes. If you are wondering how to find out where we are, check us out on iTunes by typing Nonprofit Leadership Podcast or Rob Harder, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help us expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as we can. You can also go online to listen to this podcast, either nonprofitleadershippodcast.org or my website, robharder.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep making your world better.